I don't, it, always, it always astounded me. You know, you got that church and state thing, but we vote in churches. I, I, it just blows my mind. Um, but we're going to talk, talk about a few different things in uh, Mark chapter 12. The first thing we're going to talk about is how they try to trap Jesus. But as always, before we study God's word, why don't we all begin with a word of prayer? Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we ask you to give us wisdom and strength as we go through your word and as we journey with you to the cross. Lord, though we can't carry your cross, we thank you for all that you've done for us in our lives and all that you continue to do and all that you did on the mountain of Golgotha. And we celebrate the empty tomb as Lent ends and the glory of Easter begins. Be with us today as we study your word and understand that you are all God Almighty in the flesh. We praise you, and we praise your name, and we look to you for strength here and into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we start at Mark chapter 12, verse 13. I'm going to read this real small part here. I've got my life application Bible here with notes in it, which is why I need my extra thick glasses to read the notes in here today, okay? <clears throat> Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It is right to pay taxes. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, first of all, you got to love the schmoozing going on here, right? Oh, you're such a smart guy, and we know you're not fooled by anybody, so let me try to fool you. And who are these two? Who are these two groups of people? You've got the Herodians, and you have got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, we know, are primarily a religious group concerned that they're concerned for ritual purity as if that would save them from their sin. And they truly believe that. Now, normally they would have nothing to do with the Herodians because the Herodians are a political group that approved of King Herod's compromises with Rome. Normally the two groups had nothing to do with each other because the Pharisees and the Jewish people hated the Roman occupation. They hated that Rome ruled their land. But they had a common goal, to get Jesus. And you know what's great, what's funny is the Pharisees didn't care how they got him. They didn't care if they had to lie, if they had to, whatever scheme they had to pull, if they had to hand him over to, to Rome as someone who had committed a crime against Rome, uh, laws of which they gave no credence. They didn't care about the laws that Rome set up. Just like Rome didn't care about any of the religious laws that Jesus might have broke. That's why Pilate had such a hard time handing him over to be crucified. He didn't care if he broke any religious laws. But the Herodians and the Pharisees are trying to come together to trap Jesus into saying something either against Caesar, which would make him, make him susceptible to capital punishment, or against the Jews, which would make him subject to blasphemy, which they could, you know, spread all over the world or all over the land that he had 
misspoken or that he had lied about who he was or that he did not speak the truth about God. So let's see how that works out for him. And what was the trap? Should we pay taxes or not? And then, of course, as he always does in the next sentence here, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Sorry, my finger dexterity. Okay. Bring me a Daenerys, a Daenerys and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, I'm sure most of you can translate that that meant pay the laws of the land. Obey the laws that the authorities have set, that God has set in charge. Even though the Romans were not liked by the Jewish people, we know that all authority, even as corrupt as it might be, is, are given authority or given the sword by God. They only hold power because God allows them to. And what they do with that sometimes is sinful. But Jesus is saying, do what the laws of the land say. That is not a thing of God. But your worship and your praise and your thankfulness and your blessings, remember where that comes from. Now, he doesn't say that here, but we all know that's what he's talking about. Anyway, he avoids the trap. They're trying to get him to convict himself so the Romans can haul him away. And before he even answers, he says, I know what you're doing why are you trying to do it? And they're always trying to trap him. I don't even know if they're even concerned with proving him wrong as long as they can get him arrested and executed and just out of the way. So the crowds won't follow him anymore. So they can reel the people back in and hold the power over him they once had. Because the Pharisees once, before Jesus came along, Crowds weren't running around following some guy. Now, there were a few false messiahs running around, but most of them listened to the Pharisees. They were up there on their pedestals, and they were the ones who people listened to about things that had to do with God, about how to earn God's favor, which sounds pathetic in and of itself, doesn't it? To earn God's favor. But you'd wonder why with all the laws of Moses that, that were given to the Israelites, why they created, I don't know, was it four, six hundred more on their own? How many, Dennis? 631. That had nothing to do, they didn't come from God at all. They just created them. Like they, I think we talked about this before, they, they actually had to discuss what is work on the Sabbath? Is four steps work? Is five steps work? Where, where, do we, where do we draw the line on that? I mean, <laughs> I was, it was funny. We, we um, Pastor Dan, I think I'm sure Pastor Aaron got it too, but it was uh, and, uh, something about the LCMS, um, so, what, the, the 20, what is it, the conference that's coming up this summer? The, the Synod, convention. Synod Convention, yes. 
And there was some guy that wanted to propose something about how old the earth is and wanted to take the floor. And he'd written a book about how old the earth is. And Pastor Dan said something like, and it was so funny. He's like, yeah, we've got nothing better to discuss or nothing more important to discuss than how old the earth is. Because that's real important for us to know. Now, I, I understand that there's some importance in that when you talk about dinosaurs and, and you go back and try and trace how old the earth is as opposed to, you know, something that might be anti-biblical. But if you read what it said, it would have been like the Pharisees creating this. I mean, who wants to sit around and think about things that really don't matter when it comes to our salvation? And, you know, I think creating, you know, how many steps on the Sabbath does it take to... I mean, that's right back, that takes me back to how many licks does it take to get to the middle of a Tootsie Pop? Do you remember that commercial? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> okay, so Jesus does not fall for the trap. He's saying, you obey the laws of the land, but remember who your God is. They couldn't trap him. And he warns them of that because he tells them beforehand, I know what you're trying to do, so let me answer you. But he never avoids trying to answer. He never says, oh, I'm not going to step into that. I'm not answering that. He always has an answer for them because it says here they were amazed. And you would be surprised how that word amazed is used in the Bible sometimes. Um, when, I'll skip ahead to Easter morning. When Jesus was first seen, um, I think it was Mary Magdalene and the women that first saw him. Um, there's a Greek word, and I won't do this very often, just once in a while when I think it's appropriate. There's a Greek word called talmadzo. And it, it, would, it, it said something like fear and amazement were having them. But it, it, the word amazement also, it kind of simulates with fear. Like, you know, like you see something you cannot wrap your head around. And these guys were amazed in a way that they just couldn't comprehend that he could answer so correctly without incriminating himself. But they obviously underestimated who they were dealing with. Now, the resurrection. I've got, you see in your, your sheet there, I've got sad. Because I think it's sad that the Sadducees uh, don't believe in the resurrection. Um, let's see, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read that. And this starts at verse 12, and this is St. Paul when he's talking about, okay, the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. And I say, well, then what's the point of any belief, faith in God if there's no resurrection? But Paul's words are much better than mine. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him in, in the fact that dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Paul is very redundant. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, and this is important, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So you think, what's the point of the Sadducees' existence? They believe in a God, but they don't believe in a resurrection. So what's the point? You might as well do anything and everything you can to get what you want right here and now. Because it doesn't matter. Because look at the way God operates here on earth. Or look at the way the broken world looks here on earth, okay? Evil men have lots of good things. I mean, it doesn't always work like that. And people that do good, as the world sees as good, sometimes get the short end of the stick. So if our only hope is the life here we have on earth, why are we praising a God that can't raise us from the dead? And Paul's right. We are, if that was the case, we are to be pitied above all men. So you wonder how this group of guys even got started. Let me see if my notes, my handy-dandy notes here have anything to do, say anything about the Sadducees here. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death because the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Pentateuch meaning five, had no direct teaching about it. And the writings of Moses were the only scriptures they followed. But Jesus was about to point out that Moses' books support the idea of eternal life. So let me read this section to you. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you did not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. All right, I'm going to handle that last verse here in a minute because that's, I think it's very, like it's got, I got it written there, very powerful, that I am not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now, you hear a lot of those Old Testament um, responsibilities of a, of a brother and, you know, to, now today, we, you would imagine, you know, somebody marrying, it happens, I'm sure, marrying their, their dead brother or sister's um, spouse and we would consider that maybe inappropriate, right? Um, a responsibility back then. I mean, yeah, that, that was kind of a cultural thing, but that, that wasn't the point that they were trying to make. They were trying to make, if he, she's been married to all these men, then whose wife is she going to be in heaven? Now, I don't know if any of you have ever, like, taken a grief, the gr actual grief share um, program. I, I know people that have taken it, and because they... Um, their spouse has passed away, and they want to know, you know, 
what, what's it going to be like with my spouse in heaven? And this piece of scripture here bothers a lot of people. Because it's saying to them, you know, whatever, whatever relationship you had with your husband or your wife here on earth is not how it's going to be in heaven. You're not going to be married in heaven. You're not going to, you know, so-and-so is not going to be your husband in heaven. It's not, you're not going to see, you're not going to be reunited as husband and wife in heaven. And that's hard for a lot of people. I, I, I guess I can get that. You know, especially people that have been married for decades and they're gone. You know, till, till death do we part. And I, I don't have a simple solution for that. I don't have an explanation for that. I just know that I can tell you this. You're not going to be unhappy. Because, you know, we base things on the way we see them here. You know, you're sad without your spouse. Most people are. <laughs> here. Um, so you think that's how it'll be in heaven. If I don't... If I don't, if I am still experiencing that loss in eternity with God, I'm still going to be sad. I'm still going to feel that void. And I think that's just something that we can't wrap our heads around or our arms around until we get there, knowing that there's nothing but joy in heaven. It doesn't matter how we're connected to the people that have gone before us, but we are connected by God. Now, I think it's important here... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, this note here says, what it will be like after the resurrection is far beyond our ability to understand or imagine. We need not be afraid of eternal life because of the unknowns. However, in, however, instead of wondering what God's kingdom will be like, we should concentrate on our relationship with Christ right now. Because in the new kingdom, we will be with him. If we learn to love and trust Christ now, we will not be afraid of what he has in store for us then. Now we know heaven, I'm saying we know heaven will be great and will be nothing but joy, no more tears, no more pain, but it is unknown and we fear the unknown. I do. You know, I know what um, earthly happiness looks like, even if, because it's fleeting, you know, I mean, you're happy and then you're sad, you know, bad things happen, you know, things come into your life, disease, pain, loss, and then a joyful event happens, you know, maybe your grandchild is born or uh, you know, one of, your, one of your kids gets married or something, and that's always a great day, right? A joy-filled day. But then something, has, something else happens, and that's, that's the life here on, you know, broken, sinful planet Earth. But in heaven, the, that joy is just going to continue and continue, and we can't imagine that, and we can only imagine what joy is like here, and we want to take that into eternity and make that the same kind of joy there. So, you think that you need that connection to your spouse to be happy in heaven, and you don't. And I know that's hard, a hard pill to swallow. But it also says here, they will be like the angels in heaven. Okay. Does that mean that when we die, we become angels? I'm sure you've heard that before. That so-and-so's passed away, and now, you know, uh, Joe Schmo, I don't mean to be sarcastic, is my guardian angel. Now, I heard, when I was on uh, doing field work at the seminary, I heard somebody say this, walking out, uh, walking out of church, said something to somebody about, yeah, my, my best friend passed away, and I know they're, they're looking over me, watching over me as my guardian angel. Now, Probably theologically incorrect if you want to use fancy terminology. 
But the pastor that was there that day, social grace is not very good. He gave her a lecture right then and there about how she was theologically wrong and people don't turn into angels and just made a jerk out of himself. There's a time and a place to have a conversation. That was not it. And he talked to her like she was stupid and he was smart and it was belittling and it was shameful. Um, she was a little misguided because biblically, but she... She didn't deserve that, you know. Um, let's, see, let's see what the note here says about angels. Yeah, this doesn't really go into what I think when it says you'll be like the angels in heaven. All angels in heaven, now they're messengers. That's what the word means. But they're all in heaven praising God eternally. And I think the only thing we can truly draw from that statement is that. That's, that's what we're doing. We're in eternity praising God in, in, a presence, in his presence where there's no pain and nothing but joy all the time. Now, right now, they're not in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? That's a, I, I don't know what you would call the place that they are now. What do they call that? The, the, inter, is it the intermittent period? You know, what happens to people when they die right now because Jesus hasn't returned? Has anybody ever wondered that? We can say they're with Jesus. Can we say they're, they're in heaven? Because their bodies haven't been raised yet. Because, you know, even Job says, in my flesh shall I see God. Our bodies are going to be raised out of the ground unless we're standing here when Jesus returns. So we're not at that point yet when we die. But I think it's appropriate to say that, you know, someone who dies in faith is with Jesus. Beyond that, we don't really need to know because it's, it's fine. When Paul says, I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, that's, that's, it's, that's good. We don't know what that's like. We can't imagine it, but it's not a bad thing. Okay. So Jesus is saying it's a moot point. It doesn't matter. No one is going to be married in heaven, so this, this little math formula that you've given me to try and stumble me, make me stumble is, doesn't make any sense. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how many people she's married. She's not going to be given in marriage. Now, some people have tried to interpret this to mean that, let me see if I got this right. <clears throat> They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So some people have tried to interpret that as if you die and, you know, you never divorced and you've only been married to one person your whole life, that you're still married to that person in heaven. It's just saying there won't be marriages in heaven. Not that people who were married on earth won't still be married in heaven. I know it gets very confusing, but people that have lost spouses like to like to analyze this part of the Bible a lot. And, and I understand why. In the end, I can say it's not important, but that's not enough for some people that are struggling with the loss of a spouse. You know, it's... Um, okay. So now about the dead rising, you have, not, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush... 
how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what is important about that? If he's saying that in the burning bush, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all died. They all, I don't know how the Bible puts it, they've all rested with their fathers. So they're dead. But, and God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So people with faith in God, people who lived in God, aren't lost eternally. Now, I can't use Elijah as, a, as an example because he never truly died. He rode the chariot up to heaven. But on that mountain of transfiguration, who's standing there with Jesus? Moses. Do you remember when um, Jesus is having that conversation with the Pharisees and he said, uh, they were talking to him about Abraham and Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. And they're like, you're not yet 33 years old. How could you have known Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. But he said, Abraham saw my day. Somebody who died 2,000 years before he was ever born saw him and knew him. That is not explaining a God of someone who dies and stays dead. That is not a sad you see kind of belief. That's a God of resurrection. It's a God of eternal life. How could Moses be standing there with Jesus if he's dead? Did you ever wonder how, you know, unless Jesus told them, how did Peter, uh, who was on the mountain there, Peter, James, and John, how'd they know it was Moses? They'd never seen the guy. Did Jesus tell them? I'm asking you, I don't know. <laughs> but it was. Because God is not the God of the dead, the God of the living. Now, we hear all the kinds of resurrection language we need to hear in the New Testament. But yeah, in the Old Testament, in the five, first five books, you don't hear a lot about eternal life. I mean, you hear a lot about it in, in the Psalms. You know, you hear the word forever and, and things like that. But you don't hear a lot of it in the first five books. You hear a lot of, he closed his eyes and he rested with his fathers and he's buried here. That sounds final. Yes, Helen. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Um, if the Sadducees only believed in the first five books, I don't, I don't know if, the, if they only believed. Let me see what the note says. Not that I base everything. I, it did not believe in life after death because Genesis through Deuteronomy had no direct teaching about it. Um, but you have, and, and Helen, I think you're right because you have the prophet prophets writing and the prophets writings do include things about eternity. Now Isaiah uses a whole lot of metaphors for eternity. You know, lion will lay down with lamb and that kind of thing. 
but it, it's apparent here that that's usually what they're basing their whole belief system on, the first five books of the Bible. And yeah, Helen, they would, if they did that, they probably wouldn't know any different. But, you know, my question is, why would they care? What would life... What would it mean to worship a God who was only there for this life? Because you would need to believe it in a right here, right now, God. And what do I mean by that? Um, I wasn't here, Palm Sunday, but they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not shouting because Jesus is coming to lay down his life. They think that he's coming to give them some kind of military victory that's going to happen right here and right now. Now, if you were a Sadducee, that's the kind of thing you'd have to believe in to have any hope. God's going to make this good right now. Or what would be the point? Let's say you love someone and they, they got a disease and died. Well, what kind of, what's your faith for then? Now, um, you think there are people that think, you know, that you live for the sake of good order. Or maybe they think God created uh, there's a lot of people that, that think God created the world and gave us the laws of Moses and then disappeared just to give us, you know, a, a, a way to live. Now, part of that's true. The Ten Commandments do give us good order, you know, to, to curve, mirror, and help me out, Dennis. Curve, mirror, and rule. R yeah. Rule? Curb, I, I can't, I'm losing my mind today. Curb, it's not, the, it's not the word that's coming to my head, but that's all right. But there's, use, there's uses of the law. Other, you're not earning, it, none of it's to earn salvation. The law is useless when it comes to earning salvation. But it is necessary for good order so people can live with some kind of uh, rules so you don't live in chaos. Now, you could think, the Sadducees could think, well, that's what God's for, to keep us while we're here living on earth till we die and go back to ashes to ashes, dust to dust, to keep us living in good order. But I don't think any of us sitting here, I don't think that would give any of us any hope or, or anything to look forward to. Yes, Marty. I ha I'm going to be very careful to, to speak because I don't want to say something wrong out of ignorance. I don't think it uses the term guardian angel. Angels do, on God's command, protect people. Angels do do things for people at God's command. I don't believe people have personal guardian angels. And I think it's important to understand that whatever an angel does is God's order. That angel's just not deciding to protect you. They do what God says. And I gave a, I gave a, a little lesson on angels in the, the Ask the Pastor class. And when you, what's the first thing that usually comes out of an angel's mouth when they come into contact with somebody in the Bible? Don't be afraid because they don't look sweet 
and kind and, and I mean, they probably look pretty scary. Because a lot of them, like think about Sodom and Gomorrah. They brought wrath, fire. But they looked like men, right? Because they wanted to, the, you know, we all know what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah want to do with the angels. But um, I, I think that angels do guard people at God's command. They do intervene at God's command. But I think to give the angels the, the, uh, the credit for that or make them... The, uh, do you remember, there's a part in Revelation when John's about to bow down toward the angel showing him all these visions and the angel says, don't do it. I am a fellow servant. I think it's important for us to remember that. Yeah, Dennis? Got a question concerning the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. What did they have hoping? I, I'm, I'm one, if anybody can answer that, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I don't know. I read what Paul said. He's basically saying, if you believe the way they did, you're to be pitied beyond all men. There is nothing to look forward to, and your faith is worthless. Worthless. Yes. Yes. Um, the Pharisees did. Sadducees did not. There are different sects of Jewish. Not all Jewish people do. Not all Jewish parts of Jewish religion believe in a resurrection. And, um, and some of them, if you've ever asked Pastor Dan, I never thought about it this way, but it's true. They mix up the first and second coming prophecies. You know, the great and terrible day of the Lord. They expect, that's why when Jesus came the first time, they're shouting and shouting. They think that he's come with power. Because when we think of the second coming of Christ, we don't think of a man coming to allow himself to be spit on, beaten, and crucified. That's not what Jesus' return is going to look like. It's not going to be, it's, you know, he came as the lamb and returns as the lion. It's kind of the way I put it. That's not in the Bible. I just put it that way. Be very careful when I say stuff like that, that people don't mistake it for something that's in the Bible. But he's not going to return in humility, but in that fancy word, exaltation. All power, holding nothing back. He held back the first time, not the second time. Okay. Now, let's go to religious leaders question Jesus about the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think it's called the Shema. Yeah. Uh, which is, is something all the Israelites, that's all they, they would adhere to this. This is a very important thing to uh, for the Israelites. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You can see Jesus did not prompt him to say that last part, which is good. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, 
you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, and from then on no one dared ask him any more questions. I don't, I don't know, but I don't believe that this was an attempt to trick Jesus. I believe this was a serious inquiry. Let's see, do I have any notes here? Okay, so how do we view the greatest commandment here given by Jesus? Now, you've got three things here. Now, you don't really have a commandment first, okay? It's a statement. The Lord, the God, the Lord your God is one. There is one God. I don't know if you knew this, but that's kind of why the... Um, the Muslims think we're polytheists because we believe in a triune God. They don't, they don't think, they, they don't believe that we truly separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and call it, we, we can't do that and call it one God. They, they're not buying that. But we do, right? Because Jesus said it. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So he's given two commandments here. Now, how does this play in relationship to the, the laws of Moses? When Jesus is saying that this is the greatest commandment. Does that mean if you, if you break this, it's worse than breaking the other ones? I remember my dad, who doesn't go to church much, doesn't know the Bible hardly at all, and that's okay, because he asks me questions, and sometimes I can answer them, sometimes I can't. He said, well, Adam, if you truly loved your neighbor, you wouldn't steal their stuff. You wouldn't hit on their wife. You wouldn't be jealous of them. You sure, certainly wouldn't murder them. Made sense to me. And if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, then you wouldn't lay down idols before, before him, right? Now we're sinful human beings, and we're going to slip. We do. But when you think about these two commandments, they are all-encompassing. They take everything that is in the laws of Moses and they wrap it into two nice commandments. When you think about it like that. Um, I'm not, because everything it would seem they would say here was trying to get Jesus to, to say something that wasn't right. But yet, he just summed up everything that God wrote on the, on the, on the tablets in these two commandments. If you love the Lord God above all things... You won't, you won't worship idols. Now, idols were, you know, in the Old Testament, when they were making reference to idols, they were being very, very uh, literal. You know, like a, a, let's say this is some kind of shrine I'm going to bow down to. But we know what the idols are in our lives. You know, money, fame, you know, lust, whatever, whatever we love more than God. And there are things, moments in our life we're always going to love before God because that's who we are since the fall in the garden. But that's why we have that.
And that's why, that's why we have, why Good Friday is such uh, a shameful and yet beautiful day for us. Something that, that is, is hurtful, but that we benefit from today and into eternity. Not exactly sure how to look at Good Friday. We, we, we've got, it's black, it's dark, it's shameful. We don't really sit in the sanctuary and celebrate it, but think about it. It is a wonderful thing for us because we reap the benefits of what happened. But we can't truly raise our arms in victory until Sunday, which is appropriate. So, and I don't think that we're capable of truly loving our neighbor as ourselves all the time, because there are times when we have to, when we have to, or we either want to put ourselves first. Yes. No. So you can have someone that you don't really want to hang out with. You know, even though you don't wish them any ill, you don't, you know, you care for them. So I think the definition of love is a generic kind of, I, I, I don't hate anybody. I don't know who they are. But there are some people I don't like. You know, Jesus plays with that. I don't mean... I'm not saying he's trying to mess with us, but he plays with the word neighbor because look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. The one person who everybody would say, oh, well, their neighbor's this guy is the guy that walks by him and lets him sit there. And the one person who's supposed to hate his guts is the person that picks him up and pays to have his wounds cleaned and takes care of him. And that was his neighbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, no. You don't want to prove of sinful behavior. And you don't necessarily have to, oh, that's, I'm going to invite that guy over for dinner. Um, but I think when we see people suffering and we can do something, I, that does not mean, and we're going to get to that here in a minute. I don't think that means you have to empty your bank account. But to walk, I think it should be hard for us to walk by somebody that's suffering and do absolutely nothing. It shouldn't, if, it, if, we can, if we don't bat an eyelash, something's wrong. If it doesn't strike our hearts, something's not right. I'm not saying as long as you feel guilty, you know, it's okay, as long as you do nothing. But when you love your neighbor as yourself, sometimes you have to do, you have to put them first. And sometimes that's not easy for me either. 
You know, I've got things to do. I've got things I want to do. I've got things on my mind. I, I don't want to stop and answer that phone call, even though I know it's somebody that needs something. I don't want to go make that visit, even though I know somebody's really, really lonely. I've got something else I've got to do. And let's say it's not part of my job. Let's just say it's something I know someone needs, and I don't feel like doing it. But if I truly loved them as myself, I would say, you know what? I know that that would mean a lot to them, and it's really not going to take, it's really not going to be a sacrifice for me to go do that. Yeah, Dennis, were you say something? That's the agape love. That is, that is the, the, the thing is with love, the English doesn't come across properly. You know, love is, is such, a, such a broad view. Is that, is that the word Jesus uses here? Okay. Okay, so what you've got, what, is it, is it phileo, phileo, eros, agape, uh, and, uh, actually probably six. Yes, sir, okay. So yeah, I mean, I, you, you know, you can even translate the word compassion. I think it's important for us to have compassion for people. I, I've met people, have you ever, I'm sure you have, that it almost astounds you that they don't have any compassion for somebody that's suffering. They care only for themselves. Now, they'll care for somebody else as long as everything's going fine with them and they're in a good mood or it makes them look good. But if it involves some kind of time or self-sacrifice to make someone else feel better, they're not about that. Then you're almost astounded, like, how could they not even care? They just don't care. Some people, I've seen their own kids. They care more about themselves than they do their own kids. And I'm not talking about kids that are, you know, irresponsible and spending all kinds of money. I'm just talking about they would take care of themselves over their kids. If they knew one of their kids were suffering and they were getting ready to go on a trip, they'd go on the trip because they're going to satisfy themselves first. I, I can't, makes no sense to me. Now, children and, you know, neighbors or whatever, not exactly, not exactly the same. Let's, let's get to the last part here. Okay. Oh, okay. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and greeted in the marketplaces. And have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and show for a show and make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So, what does that look like today? I mean, have you seen people going around? I, I don't want to say people, you know, uh, clergy. And whether they're in fancy clothes or they're, they're, they're up on the altar using a bunch of theological words. And you're like, I have no idea what that meant. And they go on and on and on in order to sound holy and righteous. I, remember, I was, God forgive me, but I was in chapel one time at the seminary and we had some visitors. And the guy came to the altar and did this. 
I, now I can't see into his heart, and I don't know if that was for show, but I would bet money that it was. Um, to go on with lengthy, fancy prayers, to put my hands up and make and, and talk in a way that I wouldn't normally talk to you. You know, I, you know what it sounds like. You know what sincerity sounds like. And Jesus is saying, if you're doing this to put on a show, God knows it, and it's pitiful. Um, I remember in St. Louis, I remember when the Pope, I, now I've heard nothing really without getting into theology, but good things about John Paul II. I think a lot of people thought he was a really good guy. Um, but people were bowing down at his cloak, and he was accepting worship, which is not, not cool, right, for a man. So, I, you know, I think sometimes in the, in the you know, some of the Roman Catholic uh, piety, they can get caught up into some of that stuff. But trying to sound holy when you're hoping everybody out there listening thinks you're, you know, you're the, because of the fancy words you use, that makes you somebody smart and theologically sound and closer to God than most people. We all know that that's nonsense, right? Be sincere, be real, say what you mean. And then the last thing here, as she was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I skipped to 13. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched a crowd putting their money into a temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. She gave out of their wealth, they gave out of all their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had to live on. So what does that mean? Does that mean we have to empty our pocketbooks? No, I think it, this goes along with, you know, the rich man that Jesus said, go and sell everything you have. That's not a direction to all of us because Jesus knew what he valued above all things. That's why he said that to him. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, like, let's say if you're super wealthy, it's a lot easier uh, for you, you to write a check to a cause than to go and spend a couple of hours with people, right? That would be a sacrifice. So sometimes I think giving and stewardship and love means sacrifice, not just giving what is easy to give. Here, I'll write you a check. You go take care of that. That's not wrong. People benefit from that. But Jesus is saying this woman get, did something that was sacrificial. It actually cost her something. And it meant more than these guys that gave, you know, something that they wouldn't miss. What the math is on that, I'm not going to get into. But, um, well, I better wind up because, yeah, I'm getting close to, we're getting close to service time. So thanks, everybody, for being here.